fighting for freedom every day. You as the individual, you have the power. You don't have to join a union. You go in as an entry-level position. You get the experience that you need. And then as you work up, you get better at your job, which means they pay you more. If they don't pay you more, then you go to another company to show what you've learned and what your value is to where you can get more. If they really don't like that, then you can go and start your own damn business because we have a free market, laissez-faire, capitalist society, allegedly, to where you can actually go off and do your own thing. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Boy, boy, we called that one. Holy cow, what a day it's been today trying to understand the latest in the world, which is a very difficult thing to do when Democrats are running everything. Welcome into the show. It is a midweek celebration broadcasting live right here out of the heart of the nation. Radio, TV, live streaming, and podcasting. However you watch or listen to the program, we love you and appreciate you very, very much. And boy, do we have... A lot to cram into this one-hour program with you today. Bottom of the hour, Vincent Hendricks. He is co-author of the book Ministry of Truth. We'll talk about social media, censorship, the governance board, the integ- uh, what is it? Uh, the information governance board or whatever the hell they tried to call that, the misinformation board, the czars of trying to control content out there in the real world on truth, reality, and common sense. We'll talk about that with him at the bottom of the hour on how to fight back and show truth and reason and common sense in the world all over again. I am feeling much better from yesterday, so thank you for all those. I do have a slight headache today, but I am drinking my, and don't laugh at me, yes, this is a millennial thing, but I am absolutely loving it. I'm drinking my kombucha today. Andy, what's kombucha? It's fermented tea, and it's got a whole lot of probiotics, and it's really good for you. It's definitely a younger generation thing, and I feel like a damn hippie doing it, but nonetheless, here I am rocking it. Welcome into the show. So let's get in right to it. Do you feel better now? You can write off $10,000 of your federal student loans, baby. Now the world is going to open up. The clouds will part. The sun will dip down upon us, and we'll be able to invest money back into the economy. So that way they say they were able to get the economy back on track after the inflation and after the dip that we saw with COVID-19. That's the big story of the day in our What's Trending. What's trending today? You feel better about it? The economic growth that apparently we're going to see in this nation based on the $10,000 student loan forgiveness program that Joe Biden has officially announced today. According to CNBC News, President Joe Biden announced that they'll forgive $10,000 in federal student loan debt for most borrowers. Uh, He's also set to cancel up to $20,000 for recipients of Pell Grants. As well, 9 million borrowers could have their balances entirely cleared by the Biden plan. That's not necessarily true. As I talked about yesterday with my personal story, which is the only one that I know, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you my story, that I have lots of student loans. I have about $50,000 of them right now, 45 to 50. 40000 of that is in private student loans. $10,000 of that is in, coincidentally, federal student loans, which means I will have those probably wiped away. According to them, that's going to be part of the 9 million borrowers that's just going to have it all cleared up. Now, it's going to affect in total at least uh, contributing to reducing the debt of student loans by 43 million individuals, according to the latest stats from Breitbart News. So is this the right thing? Obviously not. Is it the rational thing? Obviously not. You took out a loan, paid the damn loan back. If it's too expensive for you, then that was your own damn fault for getting yourself in this situation. And I say that by being the victim of that who has gone through that mentality. Ah, that's it. Look, this is why we need financial literacy classes in high school, is it not? 
do we need to go back and just do basic liter- financial literacy classes in high school? Because as far as I'm aware, most high schools don't have financial literacy, cl- uh, financial literacy classes in high school, which means that when we get out of high school, we don't understand the way that finances work. My parents never sat me down and said, hey, here's our checkbook. Here's what we have to go through to budget, to pay for this bill, to pay for that bill. This is how much money that comes in. This is how much money that goes out. And this is why we can't buy you all the stuff that you want all the time, because look at this. They never did that. And I wish they did. I wish that our high schools used to have financial literacy classes of setting a budget, of actually building a budget, because then Students can look at it, and while they may not be as mature as they may not be up on what the world affairs look like at the time, they could at least have a basic understanding of, hey, if I take out a student loan that is twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, then what is going to be the return on investment? I was just on the program with Armed American Radio with Mark Walters. I'll be filling in for that program tomorrow as he's going to be out doing some stuff. And as we talked about this thing, he had mentioned, and this is a perfect example. Most of you may have a small business, maybe a restaurant, a bar or a nightclub, an auto shop, maybe an investing firm, whatever kind of business that you have, you probably at one point took out a loan in order to invest in yourself to get the equipment that you needed, to get the up and running starter finances that you needed to get your business going with the hopes that you are going to get your business up and running properly to where you can pay it back and you can make a profit. That's the goal, right? But you knew that going into it because you had that mindset. This is a risk. This is a potential loss. And this is an investment in myself. We don't look at student loans that way any longer, do we? Of course not. No, it's just a given. You get out of college, you take out the student loan, you go to college, and then you hope that you get a good enough job to where you can pay it back. And nowadays, you have to get a college degree just to go and flip burgers at McDonald's because everybody's got the college degree. So the Democrats' mindset is, let's go ahead and make it more affordable and easier. And I will talk about the affordability of it actually in just a minute. But we'll make it easier for more people to get student loans and more people to get college degrees. So that way, everybody has to have one just to be able to function in society. Because if you don't have it, then you're probably SOL and you're probably going to fail in society because you're a fool for not being indoctrinated by the higher education system. So how is this going to work? Their theory is is that if you wipe out $10,000, which I don't know why that amount, you would think, I mean, Elizabeth Warren was talking about doing $50,000. Others like AOC were talking about just all of it, making it free tuition all across the board. Their theory is, is that that frees up more cash for us to start spending more money back in the private sector. And my generation, who is the 30-plus-ish, can actually start acting like an adult. According to the latest studies, my generation doesn't even consider themselves an adult until 30 years old. They're still on mommy and daddy's insurance. They're still on mommy and daddy's car insurance. They're still living in mommy and daddy's house. My generation is one of the slowest generations to actually purchase a home. And now with the real estate market at the worst that it's been since 2011 now, according to CNBC, that right now we're not seeing people buy homes. We're not seeing the expansion. So they say, well, let's free up the cash so more people can actually invest. Seems like a great plan, right? Seems like a great strategy. However... We forget the back end of this is what it's going to do. We're losing out on how much money? If we give out $10,000 and just forgive the $10,000 in federal student loans, how much does that hit on the economy? Well, the liars with the Department of Education 
and whoever was speaking today at the Biden press conference completely lied and said they just don't know. Congress gave the Secretary of Education and the HEROES Act the authority to do this. Uh, and I'll refer you to the Department of Education and, and their general counsel for the details. Whoa. Whoa. We'll get to that legality in a second. They went on to say that they just don't know how much this is going to cost. When they do know, and it's going to be close to $300 billion, that's with a B, $300 billion that the federal government's going to take a hit on. Do you think the government, federal government, who's all about thinking that you need to be taxed on paying your yard raker and yard mower that's a 12-year-old kid trying to make a buck, that they need to be taxed on that? Do you think that government with that type of mindset is just going to write off $300 billion and just lower their spending by $300 billion? <laughs> it's hilarious. Of course not. What they're going to do is they're going to raise taxes. What they're going to do is they're just going to print the money and just give themselves the cash. Which means what? Your taxes are going up and the inflation's going up. Which means those that feel like, hey, now I have more cash to freely spend around and I can pay off the rest of my student loans or I'm paid off now, the 9 million people that apparently are going to be paid off, now I can spend more cash on things. Guess what? No, you're not because it's going to go to taxes and it's going to go to the inflation. It's the centralization of the economic system to crash it with a socialist utopia. That's what the plan is. The law, it's a very simple plan. Let's crash it. Let's centralize all of it. Let's give you the freebie so you feel like you're doing something when actually it's going to be going in the opposite direction. There's a deeper issue here. Number one is the morality issue. You took out the loan, paid the damn loan back. Why do we have to subsidize our taxpayer money to compensate for you because you are too stupid to realize that you couldn't afford your student loans? And I lump myself into that category again because I came out of college and deferred my college uh, and, for, and did the forbearance for my student loans so many times for so years, so many years that my student loans went up to near $90,000 in student loans. 90000 and that's going to two years of a state university without a state tuition before I dropped out after two years and then spending nine months in a media broadcasting trade school. <laughs> $90,000. Yeah, call me the idiot because I've been there and I've done it and I did it and I'm paying off that mess. But guess what? I'm paying off the mess myself. And I've knocked it down from $90,000 to about $45,000 in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years. And I have more to go, obviously. And I will. But I did it. Now, do I have the most luxurious lifestyle because of that? No, because I'm paying off a of stupid student loans. But guess what? I'm doing it. And once I do pay them off, it's going to feel really good. And then I can live the luxurious life and I can actually start saving for retirement. And I can actually start doing the things that I need to do because that's my responsibility, not just for me personally, but for the family that I take care of as well. This is the mindset of this is the cheap way out. This is the sleazy way out to where I feel like I can actually get off and start investing because I need to spend on me, me, me right now. There's that deeper morality issue with the intention from the federal government for the complete bankruptcy of the nation just to save a buck for some individual who didn't plan appropriately economically and financially. We're not going to save any money. We're going to have inflation go up. We're going to have taxes go up. And we're addressing the issue at the absolute opposite way that we're supposed to be, like usual, because that's the way the federal government actually operates. 
We're not addressing it in the way that we're supposed to. What happens when you take out a student loan, and why is it so damn high? First off, we have to look at the education system, don't we? That's run, by the way, by the government. Most of them with a state uh, state university. Any state university at hearing Kansas Ron based out of Kansas, Kansas University, Kansas State University, Ohio State University, where I grew up in Ohio, Ohio, Miami, all these, they're all state run. They're all government run. If we want to make it more affordable, maybe we should not spend as much money on a semester of tuition as opposed to just raising tuition and then just giving you a free grant through the government that's subsidized by the American people. Why don't we just lower the cost of education? Andy, how do we do that? Well, number one, how about we stop jacking up the intro, the uh, the tuition rates every time that a university has a decrease in enrollment, and instead of just saying, you know what, uh, we need to jack up the prices, how about we actually close the department because there's not enough students in it? I, I know, I know. Very controversial there, isn't it? Maybe we should stop spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for a tenured professor that does what a public education professor does. Sure, they're doing a little bit more intricate work, obviously, but maybe we shouldn't be paying them nearly as much. Maybe we shouldn't be investing into an education system that jacks up the price and says, oh, hey, you can't afford it, just take out a bigger student loan. They're working together. The state government, the federal government, and the university, they're working together while the government says they're out there to control the industry and to cap the price of tuition hikes from universities and to give you a freebie by writing off $10,000 of your student loans. How does that make sense? Maybe we should look at the real problem, but like usual, like the government usually does, they don't look at it the actual way that needs to be. They say, oh, the price is too high, let's just give you a freebie. We'll subsidize it by the government. And they think that's going to work. It may win over a few of my generation right now, but in the long haul, we are in a disaster. Most people are going to wake up to that pretty quickly. Back after this here on The Voice of Reason. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Bring some reason into your day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back in. I kind of let that audio clip slip a little bit because that's not where I wanted to go with that one, but it really does bring up the question of the legality of what they're allowed to do and the Republicans in Congress that allowed this to happen. Congress gave the Secretary of Education and the HEROES Act the authority to do this. Uh, and I'll refer you to the Department of Education and, and their general counsel for the details. So Congress allowed this. They gave the power to the Department of Education to allow them to write this off. Now, remember, the Department of Education is nothing more than a massive bank at the federal government. It's not about quality of education. It's not about curriculum. It's not about quality standards. It's not about educational standards. It's not about helping kids, both the K through 12 or the higher education. It's not about any of that. Prime example is when they were interviewing Betsy DeVos to run the Department of Education under the Trump administration. They were asking her questions about what she thinks should be in the curriculum for education, what we want to do to better education for children. No, no, no. They were saying, hey, you ran a business. And yeah, sure, it was worth like a million or two million dollars, whatever. But you've never handled a bank account that was multi-billions of dollars. You've never handled a bank account like that. Therefore, you're not qualified to run the Department of Education. That was the arguments from the other side when they did the Q&A in the Senate. It wasn't about quality standards or anything. It was about how much money goes through and filters through the department and how she was unqualified because she's never seen that amount of cash. That's all they care about. So Congress, meaning at least a couple of Republicans, had to have approved this to let it slide through the Senate right now. 
allowed the Department of Education to make this decision. So the big question is, what's next? Because $10,000 is not going to be the end. They allowed $20,000 for those with Pell Grants. The Pocahontas, she wants $50,000 of student loan gifts. And AOC wants a complete reversal, just no student loans whatsoever, just free college for you to go and do whatever the hell you want under this nice little socialist utopia. So it's not going to stop right here. It's the beginning of it. It's the teasing, the dropping of the crumbs to see what kind of response they get. It's perfectly time for the elections. It's perfectly time to try and win over the younger generation, although I don't think it's going to win over anybody new. It's just going to rally the base that they already have that have been screaming for this for years to try and rally them and get the morale up for them to go and turn out to vote. So maybe it'll have an impact in the election, but I don't think it's going to win anybody new or widen that umbrella. But now for those that don't want to, those that don't believe in it, those that don't think it's right, you're almost forced into the system now, aren't you? into the system of accepting the quote-unquote forgiveness, the bailout, you're almost forced into it because if you don't do it, then guess what? You're not only paying your student loan still, which you should be doing, but then you also have to pay for the higher taxes and the higher inflation rates that from everybody else doing it, so you get triple the burden. In order for you to just survive or even stay competitive in any way, shape, or form economically, then you almost have to do it now, or else you'll be paying more than anybody else and you'll be falling behind while everybody else is investing and doing other stuff. Then you're almost stuck behind the eight ball from everyone else. So now it's up to the individual on whether you apply and you do it or whether you stand your principles and you fight it and you resist it, and then you pay for it along with the high interest and the inflation from everybody else that laid that burden upon you. What do you do in that situation? Because that's the position that they've set us in. It's a win-win for the Democrats. It's a win-win for the socialists. Either you partake in the system in failing as a collective, or we set you up to fail individually. And we put the strain on you. And those that are above the $125,000 that aren't going to qualify for this, I'm curious on what it's going to do for those socialists who would love to remove their student loans but can't now. Is it going to make them wake up and realize that they're now carrying the grunt of it as well? Or are they going to push to try and increase that level to just say anybody is going to get it? And here's the next question. Are they going to give subsidies for those that already paid their student loans off because they did the responsible thing? A lot of questions to be answered there, isn't it? Kind of crazy. When we come back, Vincent Hendricks, he's co-author of the book Ministry of Truth. We'll shift gears a little bit. We'll talk about censorship, social media, the governance board from the federal government on factual information being spread on social media and the private sector and their latest book on how we can fight some of that corruption. All that and more coming up for a midweek celebration right here on The Voice of Reason. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio, you're listening to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into The Voice of Reason. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Excited to have this guy on the program as we talk a lot about social media, censorship, and more. As you know, this program, God, we get censored all the time on this program between our Facebook pages, social media, uh, YouTube channels, and for medical misinformation, for spreading lies or misinformation here and there. It's a great conversation to have. What can we do about 
misinformation or just information overall on social media. Excited to have on the program. He is the author of The Ministry of Truth, Big Tech's Influence on Facts, Feelings, and Fiction, and co-author of the book. He has a doctorate in philosophy as well. Excited to have on the program Mr. Vincent Hendricks. Vincent, how are you, my friend? Very good, sir. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be on the program. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on. This is a fascinating conversation because I don't know if it's going to get any better, Vincent. I mean, what do we do when we can't get information? We have blogs out there that that can say something of, you know, uh, the the Holocaust or World War II didn't actually happen. But when we question issues from the federal government, when we question current events, we get banned for medical misinformation for COVID or for election misinformation on the elections. We can't have a reasonable conversation anymore, it seems like. Well, it's definitely true that a lot of voices are being, uh, a lot of voices are out there. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody gets heard. Some people get heard more than others, especially on social media. And it has to do with the way in which the social media is set up. So there's a Matthews principle going on here. If you already have a lot of clout, you have a lot of voice, you have a lot of, of, of penetration, then you tend to get even more. But it is not up for democracy to decide anymore. You, can re- you have to realize this, for instance. And you can say a lot, of, a lot of, about uh, Donald J. Trump, but he was publicly elected. That's yeah. But on January 7, 2021, he lost his voice in public space because Big Tech decided that he was not going to be there anymore. Now, should that be a private enterprise question, or is that a question of democracy? And what it goes to show you is that public space is now pretty much on private hands. I repeat, public space on private hands. The founding fathers would have, wouldn't have liked that too much. Neither would the entire, neither would the entire idea of the Enlightenment. The entire idea of public space is if you're a citizen, you have access, and nobody has particular interest in this in, in this public space where democracy lives. And since this infrastructure has changed, public space is not a square anymore. <clears throat> it's an information infrastructure, which is on private enterprising. So they have a lot of say as to what sort of information is out there, who should be heard and who should not be heard. And that's a new democratic condition for us as human beings that we haven't been in before. And this is happening as we speak. Yeah, it is very concerning. At what point did social media start working with government, essentially, on censorship? We tried to see uh, the government tried to pass this, uh, this uh, whatever it was, their integrity commission for uh, factual information out there. But at what point did social media say, hey, we're going to work hand in hand with you to try and maybe isolate, shadow ban, try and put you in these nice little bubbles with your content on there so it doesn't get the exposure that it usually would in an open algorithm? Was that from the beginning or did that just start happening recently? No, I think it's fair to say that it's a, it's a, I think it's in part a consequence of their business model. So that's one thing. And I don't think there was a time after which the big tech said, we're going to go with the government. That is not the way it works. But the way it works is that you have certain community standards, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, WhatsApp, and so forth. Now, they have not been wanting to get an editorial responsibility for what has been on their platforms, exactly as you said. They were just basically the providers of what should I say, the marketplace of ideas. But they also have community standards that will tell you that there are certain things you cannot do. And those are up for them to administer how they do that. So if they think there is an imminent threat to, to, the, to democracy, then they are allowed, according to your standards, which were not democratically voted in, to think whatever they want to think about it. Now, I'm not saying whether or not this is good or bad. I'm just telling you sure. that what we have is a situation in which 
private enterprising in many ways are deciding what voices should be heard and which ones should not be heard. And under normal circumstances, we would say, well, that's a question for the marketplace of ideas, isn't it? And democracy on top of that. Yeah, amen to that. You have your doctorate degree in philosophy, so, I mean, you can imagine. How important is it for social media to be as fair and balanced, quote-unquote, as possible? I mean, the latest stats show that the vast majority of Americans, especially, they get a lot of their news and information off of social media. It's not the mainstream media and TV networks anymore. It's still podcasting and talk radio, but at the same time, uh, a lot of it, with just getting the headlines, the blips of what's going on in the world and staying connected is through the news that they get off of social media. And if social media has these algorithms that's kind of censoring one side or the other, how important is it for that dialogue to be happening or at least the open-ended information to be out there for everyone to see? Well, I think it's fair to say that when the Internet sort of came around and it became accessible to everybody, the basic idea was one of idealism, right? The basic idea was this is the marketplace of ideas. Any idea, no matter how ludicrous, is tossed out there, and then we will see how well it fares in this marketplace of ideas, how many people are going to listen to it and how many are not. And then in the end, the market would be efficient in such a sense that the good information will survive and the bad will get weeded out. But that's not the way it works. So the way in which it sort of happened now is that although the social media did not want the editorial role, they have been lobbying ever since the beginning that they did not want to have an editorial responsibility. But now they sort of realize that our that they're that their role has changed from basically being bandwidth providers to also being somebody who will decide what sort of information should be online and what should what should not. And that that's in their within well within their right, you could say. It's like any paper. They decide they decide in debate columns which discussions they will have and which ones they don't. But yeah. the difference is that the information infrastructure or rather the democratic infrastructure is online. Now more than, as again, as I said before, that there's a physical criterion for access to a physical space. So from that perspective, it's more important now than ever, exactly as you say, that since most of the debate and where people get their information from is from online, now from that perspective, it's extremely important that this information is fair and balanced, and also that the kind of information that we have live up to the criteria of what we take very fair and balanced information to be. So more important now than ever. Yeah, amen to that. We're talking with Vincent Hendricks, author of the book, The Ministry of Truth, Big Tech's Influence on Facts, Feelings, and Fiction. You can find it on Amazon other places as well. Also find Vince's website at vince-inc.com. Let's talk about the fragmentation of social media for a second. Obviously, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter have been kind of the dominant ones, and they still, for the most part, are dominant in social media. Facebook being the long form, Twitter being the short form, and, and YouTube really being the video in that sense. But now we see the fragmentation, especially after a lot of the stuff that has happened with former President Trump and with the conservative movement to where now we see the Truth uh, the Truth uh, app with that's uh, that's run by Donald Trump himself. We have the Parler app. We have Rumble, which is kind of the alternative to YouTube. Everything's so fragmented now. In your opinion, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Because now we see almost kind of our own sounding boards and echo chambers with those that believe a certain idea going to certain platforms as opposed to differing ideas or do you think these are going to crumble and that we're going to stick with really the main ones overall uh, for social media sites? Well, I'm sorry to say, but the way it works has been working so far is follow the money. Mm. <laughs> and chances are you're going to have to follow it once more. I mean, the way things are set up now, there is a lot of good traffic to be had if people are angry with each other, but only if they interact. 
you have to understand that the business model of the social media is pretty simple. You take people's attention using information. That will generate engagement. Engagement will give you traffic. Traffic will cast off data. Data you will harvest, analyze, and sell it to the advertisers because those the advertisers are the real clients or customers. The users are basically the product, or rather, their attention and their data is the real product being sold. Sure. So, in other words, to say, you're going to have to follow the money as far as to say that so far it's been going like this. Follow the money. Wherever the attention is allocated is where the action is. And right now we have situations in which we're getting more and more polarized. But polarization does not add up to enlightenment necessarily, exactly because of the echo chamber effect that you were mentioning before. So I think it's fair to say that as long as we don't have more interaction between the different platforms and some sort of balanced public debate, we're going to find ourselves in situations where we polarize even more and more, and the social media will, so far, uh, encourage it because it's good for traffic. Yeah. Amen to that. Last question before we let you go, Vince, I appreciate the time very much. Uh, the question always is, in politics in general, is what can we do about it? I mean, we have these massive media giants that is social media where we feel like our voice isn't being heard, that we feel like we're not getting the proper information. When we do put it out there, we get a slap on the wrist and we can't have anybody else see our content in some way, shape, or form. What can we do? Is it just out of our hands and big tech's going to dominate us, or is there something that we can actually do to change this narrative? Well, there is something to be done. There's something to be had here. You have to realize one thing, that Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. have not been able to agree on anything much lately. We all know that. (laughs) However, there is one place where they have agreed on something, namely something has to be done about big tech, and for different reasons. But basic reason is monopolies are not what we want. And so even though Republicans and Democrats look very differently on the argument as to why they should have to intervene with big tech, they do agree that something should be done. And the same in Europe, between the European Union and the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, they are also in the running for doing something. So, actually, I think it might be time now for Democrats and Republicans to unite on this issue pertaining to big tech, because it is the only place so far for a long time that they have agreed. They might have very different arguments for doing it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Sure. Amen to that. Working together, trying to find a way to bring everybody back, find a little bit of harmony, and even though we could disagree on issues, we could work together on moving in the proper direction. I love it, and fighting off some of this monopoly in society. It's the Ministry of Truth, Big Tech's influence on facts, feelings, and fiction. Vincent Hendricks. Vince, I appreciate the time very much, my friend. I love the book. we got to get you back on and talk again soon. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Right back here on The Voice of Reason. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into the program. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks again to Vincent Hendricks coming on the program. The Ministry of Truth is the book. You want to go check that out. Talk about censorship. And boy, I tell you what, it is only censored and only not allowed when it's convenient for them when they're in some type of active control in some way, shape, or form of what's an issue going on. After the issue's done, they don't care. 
Here's the prime example of that one as we continue to battle with this misinformation governance board, which is still there, even though they said they've dismantled it. It's still lingering. They're working on new ways to implement it. I mean, come on. We tried the Inflation Reduction Act three different times before it finally went through. First, it was the Green New Deal. Then it was the Build Back Better Plan. Do you remember all the way back then when they started the Green New Deal and AOC and even the Republicans were like, oh, sure. And they did it in mocking tongue in cheek. Oh, sure. Let's put it up to a vote in the Senate. Let's put it on the floor. And no one voted for it. Even the ones that were co-authors of it, including Kamala Harris at the time and Cory Booker. They voted against it because they knew how silly and how stupid that bill was. That is what passes the Inflation Reduction Act. It went from the evolution of the Green New Deal to the Build Back Better plan to the Inflation Reduction Act. And it finally passed. It's the exact same bill that they voted against on and they mocked and they tried to disassociate from early back on. And when we call them out on it, then that's just misinformation. You're just spreading lies and false information across the board. Well, when it's convenient for them, then they censor. When it's not convenient, then they don't care because then they've already gotten their agenda done. Prime example here in the latest of the craziness that goes on in this world. As YouTube has officially changed their policies for what's allowed not on not allowed on YouTube. And COVID pandemic has been the top priority, COVID-19. If you know, you know, any individual that's interviewed, I don't know, like Dr. Robert Malone or other doctors who have questioned the government's policy of the COVID-19 protocol with masks and the efficiency of the masks or the efficiency of the vaccine or the efficiency of the isolation or the efficiency of locking things down or anything. We got booted off of YouTube pretty quickly for quote-unquote medical misinformation and they shut us down. We got suspended a few times off of Facebook and on YouTube for those here on this program and posting our live streams on those. Well, YouTube, now that the pandemic's almost over and now that no one cares about the pandemic and now that dr fauci is on his way out they've changed their policies oh yes now you can say it all you want because they got they got away with it they were able to brainwash the vast majority of the population at that time and now they're like oh we don't care you can say whatever you want because the deed is done we got what we came here to do according to tim pool on the tweety at timcast he took a snapshot of the policy changes on YouTube as they've updated their policies on what is censored and what is not censored, here's what they're not banning any longer, meaning you are allowed to talk about or say these things on YouTube without them banishing you or blacklisting you or censoring you in some way, shape, or form. Prevention misinformation category. Content that promotes prevention methods that contradict local health authorities or World Health Organization. Meaning they're not going to censor this stuff anymore. This is the new categories of what you can talk about that they didn't allow before that they allow now. Claims that there is a guaranteed prevention method for COVID-19. Meaning you can say the vaccine is not a guaranteed prevention for COVID-19. Before, if you said that, you are horrible because how dare you question these vaccines. And they even say that. Claims that any medication or vaccination is a guaranteed prevention method for COVID-19. You are now allowed to say that on YouTube without it being censored. Content that recommends use of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine for the prevention of COVID-19. We already knew about hydroxychloroquine, but they've included ivermectin, which is kind of interesting. Claims that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are safe to use in the treatment of COVID-19. You're allowed to say that now. Claims that they are safe to use in their treatment 
Before you weren't allowed to, now you are allowed to say that. Claims that wearing a mask is dangerous or causes negative physical health effects. <laughs> How many times did we say that? Hey, kids wearing masks eight hours a day in the classroom probably is not the safest thing or most uh, uh, best thing for a kid to do to be breathing in their own um, gases that they breathe out. You're not allowed to. You're now allowed to say that without it being censored. Here's the big kicker: claims that masks do not play a role in preventing the contraction or transmission of COVID-19. If you mention masks that did not work before, you would be censored. Now, you're allowed to say that. Why? Because the pandemic's over, baby. They got away with what they wanted to. The final one is claims about COVID-19 vaccinations that contradict expert consensus on local health authorities or the World Health Organization. Now you can question the mask. You can question the vaccine. You can question all the other issues. You can talk about it on YouTube without them censoring you. They've lightened up on the policy. Why? Because the pandemic's over and you allowed them to do it for the last two years. It's only when it's convenient for them about the power and the control. Back at it tomorrow for a pre-Friday celebration. Until then, be your own voice of reason. This is The Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio tomorrow.